So black women in the United States have about a 50% increased risk of delivering preterm or before 37 weeks. Um, and if instead we want to measure something like low birth weight or less than 2,500 grams, the risk is actually twofold. Um, and so that also translates to a big difference in infant mortality, which is one of the main reasons this matters. Hello, my name is Rachel Agbeko. I'm the Senior Editor of Archives of Disease in Childhood, or ADC, and a consultant in paediatric intensive care. Welcome to the ADC Spotlight podcast. We cover areas that don't usually get much attention or might be taken for granted. The aim being to engage in dialogue and inquiry, being curious how we might do things differently. This time, I will be talking with Dr. Heather Burris and with Dr. Richard David, both have an interest in equity and in health. Heather is the first author paper of Racial Disparities in Preterm Birth in the US, a bias sensor of physical and social environmental exposures. And Richard is the author of the accompanying editorial, Inequity at Birth and Population Health. Both can be found in the October edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood and on our website at adc.bmj.com. Heather, if I may start with you to introduce yourself and then Richard. Thank you so much for having me. So I am an attending neonatologist here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, in the United States, and have had a long-standing interest in why we have real large differences in birth outcomes between non-Hispanic black infants in this country and non-Hispanic white infants. And it's a real honor to be here today with Dr. David because actually my interest got peaked back in 1997 as a senior in college or university here. And my father's a neonatologist and I was on my way home for spring break and he was giving grand rounds and he presented a paper by um, Dr. David and Dr. Collins um, showing differences in birth weight distributions between um, babies born to African born black women compared to US born black women. Um, and that really got me thinking about this incredibly important issue and I've spent the last 20 years or so working on it. Thank you. Richard. It's also a great pleasure to be participating in this. It's my very first podcast. Um, the paper that Heather mentioned um, probably is the most useful thing I've contributed as a researcher. We've done, uh, a lot of work, and I say we because pretty much everything that I will have in, in the literature and talk about in uh, presentations was done jointly with uh, my former resident and student, uh, Jimmy Collins, who, after finishing his training, uh, rapidly surpassed me as the, uh, the real expert in this field. Um, the interest that Heather talks about, um, I think, is one that grabs a lot of us because um, very many doctors and other health providers, as well as other people in the society, are struck by the incredibly unfair and unreasonable bad outcomes for African-American women in the United States. And the paper that she referred to, I think, was most useful because in a single illustration showing birth weight distribution curves, it drives home the point that it is not race, uh, some kind of a genetic or um, hereditary biological 
difference between people with uh, African heritage and those with European or other uh, heritage. It's not race per se, but it is racism. It is something that happens to people in the social milieu in which they live. And uh, figuring out different ways of looking at that from different angles and compiling a more complete picture of this process is really what pretty much all the work that James mm. Collins and I have done over the last 30 years or so. So it's quite striking. So we've got the both of you together in the same area. Both of you refer to a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1997, which maybe in the cosmic sense isn't very far away, but in our medical sense and social sense uh, seems a long way away and still we're talking about these same issues so Heather could you describe what it is that you set out in this current paper and how that might relate to the paper you just referenced in 1997 right well I think if this were a simple problem um, we might have had a solution by now but I think all of the work that has come since that 1997 paper has both replicated their findings, uh, the findings of Dr. Collins and Dr. David that um, immigrant black women have better birth outcomes and that over subsequent generations that benefit uh, erodes with time. Um, but because it's not just one factor um, that women, to which women are exposed, but a combination of many, many factors this will be a difficult problem to solve. Um, and so in this paper, we set out to describe some of the complex exposures that women experience and that some of the solutions that we as physicians have may be insufficient to solve this problem overall. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, for many, and actually uh, Dr. Collins and others have measured experiences of interpersonal racism. Um, and that is often associated with the risk of preterm birth or low birth weight. Um, but that comes along with many other exposures. And some of these have been somewhat overlooked in the disparities world. Um, exposures, at least in the United States, really differ by race because of longstanding residential segregation. And so there are differences to exposures such as air pollution or uh, toxic chemicals such as heavy metals like lead exposure in the United States really differs by race and ethnicity. And so if we combine that with some of the social exposures, exposure to discrimination, exposures to other injustices, it, it just may overwhelm a human's ability to withstand all of those um, factors. And we don't know the mechanisms by which that happens, but we do know that if you're really tired, and you get exposed to a cold virus, you're more likely to get a cold. And so we know that physical and social environmental exposures can combine to lead to differences in outcome. And so it makes sense that if there are economic pressures or exposures to racism, that if you combine that with physical insults such as air pollution or heavy metal exposure, you may be more likely to have an adverse outcome. And especially in complex diseases, diseases like asthma, diseases like this complex phenotype of preterm birth. Just because not everyone might be familiar with the level of difference in their risk for preterm birth in the state, could you give a bit of a flavour what numbers we're talking about? 
So black women in the United States have about a 50% increased risk of delivering preterm or before 37 weeks. Um, and if instead we want to measure something like low birth weight or less than 2,500 grams, the risk is actually twofold. Um, and so that also translates to a big difference in infant mortality, which is one of the main reasons this matters. So black infants die at a little over twice the rate of white infants in the United States, so 11.4 per thousand compared to just 4.9 per thousand live births in the United States among black and white infants respectively will die. I think that's a good summary of the, uh, the disparity or inequity between black and white outcomes. And it, uh, it's probably worth noting that it's not getting narrower. Back in the 1950s, when the United States still ranked uh, in the top 10 for uh, infant mortality in the world, uh, the ratio of black to white mortality in the United States for infants um, was about 1.6 or 1.7. Now, as uh, Heather just pointed out, it's like two and a half. It's been going up pretty steadily over the decades. At the same time, the United States rank internationally has deteriorated so that now we rank about 30th. The other piece of this picture that's left out of many discussions is that it's not just the minority, African Americans or other minorities, who do poorly. Uh, they do uh, more poorly than white infants. However, white infants in the United States, if you were to take white babies in America as if they were a separate country and rank their mortality rate internationally, they would still rank 27th. So that's not very good. It's about two and a half times higher than the country with the lowest infant mortality rate. So I would suggest that in order to move forward, we are going to have to take a broader look and see how uh, adverse birth outcomes and other health outcomes for that matter um, are related to other forms of inequity, class inequity. Um, this is a big uh, driving force which hasn't been well addressed. Yeah, and if I could just add to that too, that I think we were all hopeful in Massachusetts, which is one of the states in the United States that first had universal health care, that we would see improvements mm -hmm. And we did. So I was in Massachusetts at the time in 2006 when the template for what later became the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare in the United States went into effect in Massachusetts. So, um, and if I did a, uh, I, I pulled the natality data from Massachusetts. And if you look at the preterm birth and low birth weight risks among black and white women prior to 2006, the risk about halved by 2016 for both groups, but the disparity actually widened. So, you know, I think the, the trouble is that um, even when we do our best with healthcare access, um, we're still not erasing the disparity. And so we need to step outside the walls of our hospital clinics or um, prenatal care clinics in order to solve this problem. That's an excellent point. And I think it's captured to a great extent in the the report uh, from the World Health Organization uh, on the social determinants of health, uh, many lines of evidence would suggest that probably only uh, 10 to 20% of um, 
mortality and morbidity differences between populations is based on healthcare. And the rest is determined by other things in people's lives. Many of the things that uh, Heather has talked about um, measuring differences in between black and white, such as exposure to toxin uh, and of course exposure to social toxin, whether this is, takes the form of being discriminated against on the basis of your race or um, perhaps just being under extreme pressure or psychological abuse at your place of employment. Many of these things can have an adverse effect on people's health uh, over time. It may express itself as high blood pressure, diabetes, or in our studies, in preterm birth. Right. And it, it's so interesting to me, too, that, um, you know, when I, I think as your paper came to the fore in, in 1997, I think people said, oh, my goodness, this is probably not genetic. Um, although there are still um, kind of holdouts that would love to kind of talk about the genetic differences between self-identified racial groups as potentially being relevant here. I would argue that they're not. Um, but if we, if we say that they're not, then it has to be environmental. And then um, often the next step people will take will be to look at individual risk factors that are modifiable, things like diet or smoking. Um, we know smoking's the biggest individual risk factor for adverse pregnancy outcomes that you can control. Um, but what's fascinating is in the United States, about only half as many black women report smoking in pregnancy compared to white women. So about 6% compared to 11% of white women. So um, actually, if, if everybody stopped smoking, the disparity might actually widen. Um, I would definitely argue we should all stop smoking, but um, that is not going to solve the disparity problem. And similarly, there are differences in obesity rates and overweight rates in the United States where black women have higher risks of those and prevalences of those. Um, but those are not major risk factors for spontaneous preterm birth. So I would argue that changing individuals' behaviors is unlikely to solve this problem. So this really feels like a societal problem that needs to be addressed um, at that macro level instead of at that micro individual level. So Heather, you just mentioned that at a societal level, you could suggest that um, access to healthcare is a societal um, intervention or an intervention at societal level. Um, but, but the question is sort of where in society do you put that in intervention? You put it too far uh, away, so at access, uh, then you may not be able to um, address what it is that you would like to address. Um, one of the things you mentioned previously was that uh, in the United States there is a segregation in living environments where people live. Would that be an area of interest? Yeah, so it's interesting. Integration alone might not be the only solution here. Um, I think it's really improving the neighborhoods where humans live um, because we've learned that uh, through even some randomized trials of moving women. Um, that outcomes aren't necessarily improved. And I do worry about kind of disrupting the social fabrics that are the positive influences in humans' lives where they live. And so instead, I think we need to focus on both the social aspect of uh, reducing structural racism, which I wish we all knew how to solve, and I don't think any of us knows yet how to do that but also reducing some of the negative exposures and increasing some of the positive exposures in neighborhoods. Also, we can enforce um, some of the local government decisions around not having um, lots of 
uh, air pollution, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that come from places like chop shops and um, gas stations, right? So some cities are better than others at regulating where these um, uh, facilities and incinerators and other things exist. And so perhaps just cleaning up our environments may help with some of these disparate outcomes, given that black women and poor women are more likely to live in areas that have high levels of toxic exposures and lower levels of some of the um, beneficial exposures, such as green space and other uh, supports. I think those are um, exciting results when we, when we read about some of the um, community level interventions that people are trying. Um, I really think that if the United States wants to see significant improvement in outcome, there needs to be uh, a reordering of priorities uh, that really puts human needs ahead of serving vested interests and profit. The other thing is probably a little bit more humility on our part uh, as a nation. Why is it that there's so little uh, interest in studying what is done differently in other countries? Uh, for me personally, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, travel to Cuba a few times, and that country caught my interest because their mortality rate became better than the United States uh, in the year 2003, and has continued to be uh, since that time. How does a country with one-seventh or one-eighth of our per capita GDP uh, have such good health outcomes? It's a long story and complicated, but one thing is the amount of stress that women are under during pregnancy is uh, considerably less. It's measurably less. Uh, use of maternal homes and a variety of other uh, social supports is uh, almost unimaginable in the context that we're used to in our uh, hyper-competitive society. I do think we're going to need to pay close attention to absolutely what other countries are doing that seems to be working, especially in places that have diverse populations, places like the UK, for example. So there is this diversity in population and differences in privilege um, and going through the generations of uh, disparity in both countries. Um, th there are differences um, between the countries, um, not, not just in how healthcare or social care has been organised, but as I think there is a a palpable difference and although that might start to become less so as to how important race is as a as an entity I think it's only recently that the UK has started to come to uh, need to grapple with um, institutional racism or racism as a in, in our society I believe that um, in the States there has been a longer standing understanding that race is of importance um, and requires attention. Um, but I wonder whether the type of attention might need changing. Well, certainly in the, any discourse in the United States uh, about public policy, health, or a variety of other uh, areas, race is salient. And the way race interacts with class, another major inequity, in American society, I think is crucial. That is to say, in most of the uh, European countries, um, there's an acknowledgement there's such a thing as social class. And health statistics, for example, are collected and reported uh, 
in that format. Whereas in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and National Center for Health Statistics um, usually only uh, tabulate by race. Uh, sometimes education is added, but much less often. I'm hopeful that there's greater uh, cooperative solidarity between people of different uh, ethnic groups and identity groups. Perhaps we can see a shift in, in power and policy making in this country. Mm. Heather, would you like to comment on that? I think in some ways we have both streams of consciousness because another very important bit of work that Dr. Collins did, and I can't remember if you were part of this too, Dr. David, but the, um, when, when restricting to college graduate women in the United States, so this would be among our highest class here in the United States, we still see really big differences by birth outcomes mm-hmm. between black and white women. And we've also, if you then include women who um, have less uh, lower education levels, we see that white women who drop out of high school, do not graduate from high school, have better birth outcomes than black women who graduate from college. Mm -hmm. And so it is so that I think also becomes frustrating. This is a little bit of my um, focus on not, not the micro, right, but having to think about the macro factors because just educating women more will not solve this problem alone. And I think that's um, due to a few things. One is that there's still a, a lifetime prior to that education of, of a set of exposures and experiences. There's ongoing discrimination and racism and stressors of being black and educated in this country. And also, that not all college-educated women are part of the same social class. So I think sometimes we don't do a great job of measuring that in a more granular way. And so it is very common and and written about widely that um, wealth, not just education, um, is really different by race in this country. So the amount of wealth that a college graduate might have if you're African-American is likely to be less than a college graduate, a a white woman or man graduates from college. And part of this is because often there are fewer college graduates among in black families. And so those individuals end up supporting their families and sending money home. And I, I saw that in medical school, lots of colleagues and friends who were sending money back home um, when I was grateful to be able to pay for my apartment on my own, right? And so this is a very, and in full disclosure, I am a a white woman, and maybe we can talk about what it's like to do this work as a white woman, but um, this this is a very common theme. And so I think sometimes we we need to look at at both and maybe need need to do a better job of what we mean by social class and thinking about it uh, within Strata as well. Yeah, so I think that harkens back to something about generational issues. Um, let me jump in on the transgenerational or multi-generational effect uh, angle, because I think that's something that needs to be kept in mind. I mean, the inequity between black and white in North America is something that took centuries uh, of inequity to develop. We also know that, uh, and I believe um, Dr. Berth mentioned uh, in her review article, uh, the possibility of, although we haven't demonstrated this conclusively, epigenetic phenomena in which 
the oppression and stress that's experienced by one generation is then encoded epigenetically and passed on to subsequent generations. And if it's uh, accumulated over a period of three or 400 years, um, we can't expect immediate um, reversal of this, of this process. That being said, we need to start wherever we are and try to make the most dramatic progress possible. Yeah, so um, the, I get this question often about epigenetics and whether epigenetics can explain the racial disparities we see in birth outcomes. And I think the jury is still out. Um, we're probably needing to think about um, kind of holistic changes to regulation of stress responses and uh, immune responses and all of the things that go into complex disorders, right? We're talking about differences in things like asthma and cardiovascular disease and preterm birth, all of which are big racial disparities. I think it, it's going to be a puzzle that's going to take probably more than the 22 years since your Sentinel paper to figure out. I'm glad you're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a theme that comes through in sort of, there's a, the, the complexity of the outcomes that we study um, uh, and we and we put a stamp on them, as you say, asthma or cardiac disease or preterm birth. Um, as is one um, one word that encompasses uh, a very complex background and coming together of things that we can't address in a reductionist way. So um, I wonder whether, in that context, I think you mentioned allostasis, Heather, um, when we talk about stress. Um, and how, how that might be an area of interest. Yeah, I think, I mean, the work that's been done in this is so important, which is that I, um, intuitively to me, it always has made sense that we can handle a certain amount of stress. We were designed to be able to do that. Um, and everyone's amount that they can handle may, may vary, but once those stressors start to pile up, um, I'll give an example. I, I met with a family recently um, after for an, an autopsy meeting and it, this was a, a teenage mother whose mother had been a long time um, had, long, had struggled for a very long time with substance use so the grandmother of the baby who had passed away the grandmother's uh, partner had just been murdered by a gunshot wound um, and they had had a fire in their home in the last six months necessitating a move and then they moved to another apartment where they were robbed and the teenage mother now the grieving mother of a baby who passed away all she wanted was another baby but um, you know the healthcare system had kind of done their best to provide important care to her so she was using long-term contraceptives uh, and the boyfriend who came to the meeting as well um, was there saying he he doesn't think about this anymore because he um, you know has another baby with another woman the amount of stress that this grieving teenager was under it was unbelievable and um, it, it's a it's not surprising that given all of those stressors there could be an adverse birth outcome and I think that this is not an uncommon story in, in our country and probably across the world that once you've had a number of stressors you're more likely to have an adverse health outcome. Um, and I think that is really kind of the, the basis of allostasis. Sometimes those stressors are things like racism or not getting a job because of discrimination or 
and being treated unfairly and then also having economic pressures, right? It can be more um, kind of day-to-day stressors. And sometimes it's just adding up of unbelievable trauma um, that uh, is going to overwhelm our body's ability to physiologically cope. I think one of the things what you say there is that it's relentless as well. So there is no time for recuperation. It's relentless. Is that what you also saw uh, in your studies, Richard? We haven't done any studies that were very comprehensive in terms of picking up all the different kinds of stress, although in my clinical practice as a neonatologist, I've met families going through the incredible types of stress, multiple-layered, multidimensional stress that that Heather was just describing. ability to look at all these things in a you know sophisticated scientific way uh, it's a challenge but sometimes when I look at this maybe because I'm not equipped to handle the scientific challenge of that level of complexity I'm just tempted to say why don't we just fix everything I mean they <laughs> I mean if the problem is that uh, people's lives have all these incredible difficulties most of which are related to their position in the social system, right? This family did not have uh, a nurturing environment that encouraged higher education and financial stability and accumulation of wealth, um, which, by the way, the disparity or inequity in wealth accumulation in the United States is largely related to home ownership and the fact that there's a huge black-white uh, gap in home ownership dates back to redlining that was a part of federal government uh, policy in the FHA home loan uh, program that was started in the 1930s and 40s. Anyway, big systemic problems uh, really are probably going to need big systemic solutions and uh, figuring out how to build the political will and political solidarity and unity necessary to force through change in that progressive direction, I think is the challenge that many of us feel today. So there's three of us talking um, about these disparities and all three of us in some way or another have had the privilege to be able to talk about this in this type of podcast. Um, So um, Heather just said, I'm a white woman. Uh, Richard is a white man. Um, I'm of mixed heritage and a woman. Your colleague, Dr. Jimmy Collins, is a black man. So does it matter? Does it matter um, when we try to address these big problems, what our, what our own background is? I think it does matter. I think it matters with respect to just having some awareness that not all of our experiences are going to be the same. Yes, I worry about academic colonialism, right? I think that this is not necessarily my personal problem. Um, but it, I, I don't know how Richard or <laughs> Dr. David feels about this, but it, I, I can't unsee what, what I've seen. And um, we have scientists around the world studying diseases that they don't have or their families don't have, right? They might be discovering the gene for some rare disorder 
because it's scientifically interesting to them or they have the tools to work on it or the freedom to work on it or the resources to work on it. And so I feel incredibly privileged to be able to ask important questions and try to answer them. But I also by no means want to convey that I have any idea what it's like to be black in America. I, um, I do not. And um, I have definitely listened and read a lot of what other humans experiences have been, but uh, it is not my own personal experience. Well, I, I would echo that. I guess I'm supposed to be the most privileged one here. Uh, so, okay, I'll take it. Um, but Not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> it was our assumption. Uh, but really, I think it's a matter of what it is, to some extent anyway. There is uh, A lot is tied up in the, the spirit in which we, we function. We, uh, as as Heather said, you see something and you can't not see it. You can't unsee it, even if you don't feel it or experience it in the same way as the person who is under the the boot of oppression, getting traumatized. Still, as humans, we relate to that uh, other human in a in a way that is compelling. And if if we are responding in solidarity, not in in sympathy. Uh, then I think that's the best we can do. I mean, I'm, I am who I was born, you know, that's, that's just the, the fact. But the other piece of this is the kinds of changes that need to be made when you start thinking broadly about the uh, breadth of the, of the problem and the historical sweep of the challenge that we face. This is not something that some clever scientist is gonna figure out and fix. This is going to require uh, an unprecedented uh, social movement. Mm, thank you. Can I just add one more thing to that? I don't know if um, Richard hears this in his nurseries or his NICUs, or whether this is something that happens only in the US um, in, in the NICUs where I am, but I will tell you that the, the way that race is discussed in our NICUs is in a really bizarre way, which is um, there's a there's something called the wimpy white boy, um, which is the refers to a 36 or 37 week pretty well grown white boy who's puffing and puffing with respiratory distress in the corner, and we're all fretting about whether we should put a breathing tube in and give that baby surfactant or whether we should let him just huff and puff away on his non-invasive positive pressure. And that was, that's honestly when I hear race discussed in the NICU, that's what I hear most often. And to me, that really misses the big point, which is that black babies are disproportionately populating our nurseries, our NICUs, and are more likely to die. And so I think changing the framework of that race discussion in our NICUs is so important for trainees. And I'm sure the ones in Chicago have been better trained than most, given the work that you and Jimmy have done. Richard, but I think that it is critical that our trainees understand this so that they can be socially conscious and part of the movement that you described. I was just thinking along those uh, those veins, Heather, when um, uh, the, the term social movement came up. So as doctors, we're very privileged in our environment for many reasons, and we have the capacity to start those conversations. Um, that we start to talk about race in a different way um, uh, and that we start to talk about race 
um, in terms of solidarity. And I liked what you just said there, uh, Richard, about in solidarity uh, rather than in um, sympathy, um, because it comes from an uh, egalitarian background. So we connect with each other based on our humanity uh, and go from there. I'm glad that uh, that struck you in a positive way. <laughs> yes, I may borrow that phrase from you, Dr. David. <laughs> uh, definitely uh, available. Help yourself. <laughs> so may thank you both for this absolutely wonderful conversation. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. Great. Well, what a great opportunity to get to be part of it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's such an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and are galvanized to be part of a movement towards greater equity, regardless of your background and based on our shared humanity. Remember, you can read both papers in the October edition of Archives of Disease and Childhood and on our website at adc.bmj.com. <laughs>